Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Well, would you like to bring us up to date with where we are in the story? <sighs> sure. <laughs> so a lot has happened. Mm-hmm. There is a drug-fueled... Well, do we want to go over it all or just part two or... Why don't we just do a brief overview? Because I'm sure people aren't jumping in on episode three. And if they are, they should not... Go listen to... Go yeah. listen to parts one and two because there's a lot to cover. Yeah, but for the people who have been listening over the last four weeks, where are we at? There is a cult in Japan called Om Shinrikyo, and it is a drug-fueled nightmare, and Mm. they are messing around with lots of chemical weapons, and a lot of their exploits are being foiled, thankfully, (laughs) thus far, probably because they are (laughs) drug-induced, but... They have had a couple of attempted attacks with botulinum toxin. Mm -hmm. They have been making sarin gas. Mm -hmm. They're still growing in numbers at this point. Mm -hmm. They've expanded to Russia, the U.S., and now they're getting ready for their big attack because Armageddon is approaching. Armageddon for the cult. Yes. And so we are in 1995, and we are focused now on the Tokyo subway. So there are 30 lines that cover the more than 400 miles of underground and above ground tracks in Tokyo. And in 1995, they were used by more than 5 million people every day. Each car on a single train could hold 1,518 people, and there are typically 10 cars to a single train. Trains stopped at the station at two and a half minute intervals in order to service and run with impeccable timing. Like, you know, there's Tokyo time and there's Italian Mm -hmm. time. And Tokyo time, because it services 5 million people, it has to be, like... Be on point. Yeah. Yeah. The part of this system which was targeted by Om Shinrikyo was the Kasumagaseki transfer station in the heart of Tokyo. This transfer station was close to the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department, the National Police Agency, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the Ministry of Finance, along with other Japanese government agencies. These were the main targets, really. It was also decided that an attack during Monday morning rush hour would cause the most absolute damage possible and would take out as many Tokyo cops as possible because it was planned to happen during shift change, Mm. thereby effectively preventing the raid on the Mount Fuji compound that was being planned and the other Ohm buildings. And this was going to happen on March 20th. So they were like, we have to stop this before they have any chance of stopping us. Right. They're like, let's get in front of it. Let's mm-hmm. yep, cut it cut it off before it, it spreads to us and gets in into our ranks and yeah. really sees what's what we're about right now. Yeah. Yeah, because if they see what they're about, like shit's gonna go down and right. not in the Armageddon way that they're anticipating. Right. So but but they were kind of looking at this as their Armageddon, right? Yeah, they wanted to induce Armageddon. They yeah. thought that they could start it and start World War Three and all that. Mm-hmm. Hideo Marai, I think I was saying his name wrong previously, but whatever, 
was in charge of the operation for the attack on the subway. He was, like, the mastermind. Like, Shoko Asahara was like, this is what I want to happen. And Hideo Morai was like, this is how we're going to do it. And he decided that a simultaneous release in five different cars on three different lines should be conducted, converging on the Kasumu Gaseki station between 8 and 8.10 a.m. This plan needed to be enacted quickly, and the cult members only had two days to plan. But Hideo Marai knew something that Shoko Asahara did not. When the order was given previously to destroy the remaining stocks of Saran and its intermediates, the physician Tomamasa Nakagawa had saved three pounds of the intermediate precursor to Saran and buried it for safekeeping. From this, they were able to produce seven liters of sarin gas, but they were under such a time crunch that they weren't able to distill and purify the sarin to the levels that they were usually able to, which it was still impure. I mean, they were still working out of a shack. But now the sarin that they had was only about 30% pure. Is it still incredibly deadly when it's only, like, partially pure still? Yeah, yeah okay. it's, it's still pretty bad. Sarin is... Oof. Okay. Yeah. So a group of four members scoped out the subway on March 18th, and they stuck out in the morning crowd. One man actually recalled seeing them wearing identical uniforms of beige jackets, navy pants, sunglasses, and medical masks. And, of course, medical masks were typical back then in typical in Asian countries, but, like, sunglasses underground, and why are you all dressed the same? Right. I don't know. It's ridiculous. One of them was also wearing a white wig, just inexplicably. Just just for good measure. <laughs> they were checking their watches and writing in notebooks, and so the man kind of assumed that they were subway workers, like taking notes on like when the trains arrived or mm. how many people or whatever. What they were actually doing, of course, was making notes of the train departures and arrivals in preparation for the attack. They were looking for how long the doors stayed open at stations, what doors on the trains were nearest to the exits at the stations, and then where the station exits were in the buildings and how many Mm. of them there were. So they were looking for their getaways. Because they weren't planning on being suicide. No. Like, they were planning on getting in and getting out. Like, this wasn't a suicide mission, right? Yeah, because Armageddon for them is if you believe in Shoka Asahara, you will survive. Gotcha. You just have to go with his plan. Unlike their other attempts at mass terrorism, this one actually went as planned, unfortunately. And that's why we've heard about it, kind of unlike the Matsumoto attack, that Mm -hmm. it went to plan, but it was smaller. And then the anthrax attack that did not go to plan. So this episode is going to be a lot rougher than the other two because the destruction wrought by Om Shinrikyo on the Tokyo subway system was enormous. And the only detail that is in any way redeeming about this day they chose for the attack is is it was between national holidays. The next day was the first day of spring, so it was between the weekend, and then Tuesday was the first day of spring. And so the trains weren't as filled with as many people as usual, but they were still, like, pretty full because it was, like, a regular work day that Monday was. Right. But still slight reprieve, I suppose. a little bit, if you're looking for any silver lining in this. Right. And perhaps the reason that the attack was such a success was that Ohm was actually using a simpler technique instead of trying to get high-tech and be the sci-fi nerds they usually were. What they did was they took 11 plastic bags that were filled with liquid sarin and then placed them inside a larger bag for their own safety. There were supposed to be 12 bags, but only 11 were made. 
And the night before the planned attack, the selected cult members who were going to actually puncture the bags on the subway and release the sarin had to actually practice stabbing bags that were full of water. They had to practice them with the, sh- the sharpened umbrellas that they had, you know, like rice okay. style. Right, right. I was going to say the umbrellas are back. Exactly. <laughs> and, like, they had to do it with just amount the right of pressure to actually get through both plastic bags and then not have it, like, splurt into the air or, like, just dribble out. There was, like, this... Well, because they don't want to make a spectacle of exactly. it. Exactly. Either. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that same night, a group of five members, these were the getaway drivers who didn't have to practice puncturing the bags, but they were still very much so involved in the sarin attack. They headed over to the Ohm headquarters in Tokyo in a single car with Molotov cocktails, and they firebombed their own building. Now, (laughs) right, they believed that this would help to garner sympathy from the public and divert any suspicions that the attacks the next day were being orchestrated and carried out by Ohm. Okay. Because they were idiots. Yeah, okay, okay. Luckily, no one was injured in this bombing, but the people who came to see what happened found the road covered ticker tape style with pamphlets which read, Death to Shoko Asahara, We Will Not Forgive Ohm, a group of criminals, from the Science of Happiness. And this last mention was the name of a rival cult that had been announcing over loudspeakers in Tokyo that <laughs> Ohm was responsible for different crimes, which they weren't wrong. Like No. Well, yeah. But <laughs> the day before the firebombing, the Science of Happiness had filed a lawsuit against Om Shinrikyo for damaging their reputation. So, it's so just there's, this... like, rival cults yes. situation. <laughs> exactly. Okay. On the morning of March 20th, 1995, the five cult members who were going to board the trains took their antidote pills and headed out with their five getaway drivers for downtown Tokyo. The central target for the attack, as I said, was Kasumigaseki Station, which they had previously attempted to attack with botulinum toxin. But the single cult member responsible for arming the customized briefcases hadn't filled them with the toxin. So it's basically the same plan, but now we're using Sarin and we're going to converge with three different trains. Okay. Similarly, this time... Although they were bound by the same rules and fears that keep people in cults and keep them following orders, the five who carried the sarin onto the trains did not have to go through with the attack. Obviously, they didn't have to go through with it. They could have said that they got caught, or they could have said that the attack failed. Ikuo Hayashi, who was the head of Linux, strongly reconsidered his actions, which were in opposition to his role as a physician. Like, do no harm. Right. Reportedly, he was never comfortable with the plot and was unhappy to have been assigned a role in the attacks, especially since he was a doctor. But yet, he found himself on train A725K of the Chiyoda line on the morning of March 20th. And once he was in his designated car, he started to take the sarn out of his backpack, wrapped it in that morning newspaper to be less conspicuous... But then he he did stop. He made eye contact with a woman in the car, and I think she had a baby. And he realized that if he punctured this bag, this woman was definitely going to die. But once he began to think about the things that Shoka Asahara had told him and the rest of the members of Omichimbrikyo about the transmigration of the victim's souls and the eternal bliss that Mm. everyone is going to experience, he changed his mind. He's like, I'm going to be delivering her to this beautiful nirvana. Exactly. If she's innocent, she'll go to, you know, heaven. He'll he'll ascend to nirvana. She'll go to heaven. And if she's not innocent, she'll go to hell. Mm. But, so yeah, he went through with the attack. 
Kenichi Hirose also had second thoughts and actually got off his train on the Marunouchi line, but then returned to train A777 and ultimately ended up himself suffering from the effects of sarin poisoning after he punctured his bag and left. Yasuo Hayashi, who was Hideo Marai's right-hand man in the Department of Science and Technology with the nickname Killer Hayashi, had volunteered to take the extra bag and had done so gleefully by later accounts. He boarded the third train of A720S on the Hibiye line and stabbed his three packages the most out of anyone, which wasn't what he was trained to do, but it certainly helped to release the liquid sarin more quickly than on the other lines. This guy was like amped. Gung ho. Yeah, yeah, he's jacked. Like, yeah. He's like, let's kill some people. I'm Killer Hayashi. Yeah. Not as reluctant as the others. Yeah. And so the bags were all punctured, and they were punctured with such timing that the OM member would immediately get off the train. Like, they knew that their stop was coming. They would puncture the bag and then run away. And then their getaway driver would meet them at a prearranged location. They all had to remove their contaminated clothes and then dump them and their umbrellas into the river. And then they returned to the Mount Fuji complex to meet Asahara. And there were members like Hiroshi who were experiencing low-level sarin exposure symptoms, and they were given injections of atropine and 2-PAM. Their clothes and belongings had to be completely destroyed as part of the decontamination required for treatment. Like, they knew that they were at risk, and they knew that this is what was going to happen to everybody else. Like, they were aware of the clothing contamination that we're going to see later in the day. And did they all survive? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But because they had the two pound. They didn't have right. that high. And, yeah. And they took the antidote before as like mm-hmm. a precursor. Okay. Yeah. Or a preventative, yeah. rather. But, of course, the civilian riders on the subway didn't have that advantage. Eight of the 11 bags were punctured, releasing 159 ounces of impure sarin. Unaware of the poison which was puddling at their feet in the crowded car and slowly vaporizing into the air, passengers inadvertently spread the train within the car and from station to station, helping it to spread and volatilize. In one car, a group of Americans commented that many people on the train seemed to have coughs or colds as the first symptoms began to manifest, with everybody just suddenly coming down with something on the car. A man on the Hibiya line found Killer Hayashi's three bags of sarin since they were leaking so profusely and kicked them out of the train car and onto a platform at the Kodamacho stop around 8.02, but when the doors closed, it ended up leading to the death of four people on the platform because they began to be mm. exposed. This didn't do much to mitigate the damage on the train either. A man and a woman collapsed onto the floor of the car and began to seize. Many more fled the car at the next stop, fighting to breathe and struggling to see as their pupils constricted. Once they were off, however, the train just rushed on to the next station because nobody knew what was happening yet. Finally, someone managed to press the emergency stop for train A720, and five people literally fell out of the train car and collapsed at the Tsukiji station. The first calls came into the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department at 8.09 a.m., but they were reported as an explosion at the Tsukiji station four stops away from Kamugaseki because people appeared to be suffering from burns and possible carbon monoxide poisoning. This is all anybody could really tell. And for this reason, initially the attack was mistakenly called the explosion at the Tsukiji station. So everybody's 
at these other stops talking about, oh, there was an explosion and they don't realize that it's not. That it's still ongoing. It's not an explosion. And it's not limited to that, that single station. Right. It's all over. Mm-hmm. Commuters smelled the stench of burning rubber or mustard or isopropyl alcohol or a sickly sweetness thanks to the impurities in the sarin, which on itself is odorless. But they were smelling all of these different things and then not knowing what it was. And they were coughing, they had runny noses, they were nauseated. Those who remained on the train were panicking. They were attempting to cover their noses and mouths with handkerchiefs. They were becoming faint. They were vomiting in the train car and just adding to everything. And they were repeatedly pressing the emergency alarm button, but the train can't stop between stations if it's, like, Mm, in a tube it has to keep going. Right, because there's nowhere to get off. Right. Right. Those who were able to reach them attempted to open windows and vent the train, while others squatted as low to the ground as they could, as they would do in a fire, to avoid smoke inhalation. Mm -hmm. But in this case, they unfortunately only brought themselves closer to the source of the sickness. Ambulances were dispatched to the 15 underground stations that were affected, but only added to the chaos as commuters who heard the message to evacuate were attempting to flee from the toxic fumes, while firefighters, policemen, and paramedics were trying to get into the station going the other direction. So it's just like fish swimming upstream at that point, basically. Mm -hmm. None of the emergency responders were prepared for a toxic gas attack, and without gas masks or protective gear, some of them also fell victim to the spreading sarin. Eight were already dead on the Hibiya line, 2,500 injured. Reports continued coming in that another line was hit with whatever this was, a gas leak? They don't know. And then another one was hit. At the Kamiocho station, about 50 people were lying on the platform, vomiting uncontrollably, foaming at the mouth, bleeding from the nose, or violently convulsing. Others were still standing, but barely, as they leaned against benches and walls for support and struggled to breathe or see. Now, the stench emitting from the trains could be smelled on the street level of those stations close to the surface. For those who are exposed via inhalation of the gas, the effects take hold almost immediately. But when exposed through the skin, the symptoms can be delayed for as long as 18 hours. Granted, the poisoning is typically less severe when it is delayed like this, but that means that people could carry the sarin with them and require treatment later or spread the sarin wherever they went. Victims ultimately also needed to be placed on ventilators until their bodies were able to breathe on their own again, but they were nowhere near getting the help they needed to at this point. Well, and and none of them would really think, like, oh, I should change my clothes when I yep. get home. Like, especially if they're not showing any symptoms, like, they're not mm-hmm. they're not thinking that. Like, why would anybody think to do that, you and it's, know? And it's not when I get home. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. It's I still got to get to work. Oh, right. Like, so they're spreading it to people at work. And then, like, is there – could there be transfer mm-hmm. from, like, okay, mm-hmm. person to person? Okay, well. Yeah. Back underground, an assistant manager in Shizuka Nagayama found two of Dr. Hayashi's bags of sarin. One was empty, but the other was leaking as Nagayama picked it up. Another station manager helped him to wrap the bags in plastic and remove them, and soon both workers fell ill. A woman who was on the Chiyoda line remembered it this way in an interview with Haruki Murakami. What I saw was, how shall I put it? Hell describes it perfectly. Three men were laid on the ground, spoons stuck in their mouth as a precaution against them choking on their tongues. About six other staff were there too, but they all just sat on the flower beds holding their head and crying. The moment I came out of the exit, a girl was crying her eyes out. I was at a loss for words. I didn't have a clue what was happening. 
I used to work for the Japan Railway. I'm used to dealing with emergencies. This is no time to be crying, I said. We're not crying, they answered, though it looked like they were crying. And of course, that's probably because of the lacrimation right. that the nerve agent was causing. On the Chiyoda line, station master Tsuneo Kishinuma came to investigate another bag, which he removed and then cleaned up the mess with just newspapers. Like, he didn't have rags or anything. He only had newspapers. Kishinuma mm-hmm. and a colleague named Takahashi, who helped him dispose of the bag, had to phone their supervisor soon thereafter, reporting that they felt ill and needed to leave. And when their supervisor, Toshiaki Toyota, arrived, he found them on the floor, bloody foam pouring from their mouths. Yeah, that escalated quickly from I don't feel well to foaming at the mouth. And that's the thing is that even with this 30% sarin, like, because they they probably had exposure through the skin by, you know, trying to move it with these newspapers. Mm -hmm. They were right above the vapors, and within minutes it turns into this. Right. And unfortunately, there would be no saving them as their hearts had already stopped beating, and an ambulance wouldn't reach Chiyoda for another hour and a half. Oh, wow. Because of the strange reports coming in from multiple stations, the media got there before help did. A camera crew was convinced to help transport some of the victims to the hospital, and emergency services were called, but late, and had so many stations to help that there just weren't enough to call everyone. One commuter who was forced off the train at the Ginza station recalled, I went straight to a phone booth and dialed 119, but all I got was, all of our ambulances are out on a call at the moment and cannot come to you. Please remain where you are. They were all at Tsukiji and Kasuma Geseki. So I went to the police post in front of the subway station to try to get some kind of help, but words still hadn't reached the police there. When I rushed in spouting off about an incident in the subway, the officer had no idea what I meant and simply couldn't be bothered. I realized this wasn't going to work, so I decided to hail a taxi and take my colleague to the hospital myself. The woman and I held him up between us and told the cab driver to go to the Red Cross Hospital in Hiro. That was the closest. Toshiaki Toyota, the supervisor on the Chiyoda line, he fell ill as well after reporting to his colleagues, but lived to call himself a survivor rather than a victim of the attack. And this is possibly because after he was exposed and began to tremble and feel unwell, and he had only been exposed to a little bit, he went to wash his face and in doing so took off his sarin-soaked uniform because he always took off his uniform if he was going to wash his hands and get it wet or something. And so he rid himself of his clothes and he washed the sarin off of his face. And both of those things probably saved his life. But still... For a long while, the trains on the exposed lines continued to run, only minutes behind schedule despite the chaos, and they continued to spread the sarin. Sidewalks above ground were strewn with the bodies of victims, and those who were still able to walk were running for safety while overhead the TV station helicopters captured the chaos from above. It was the largest disaster Tokyo had seen since World War II. Thousands of people were affected physically and mentally, and hundreds were admitted to the hospital. Only 10 deaths happened as an immediate result of the attack, but two more would die weeks later from irreversible brain damage. Even people who were not on the train when it happened were victimized because, as we said, they were off-gassing sarin from their clothes. Uh, The commuters were, and they were spreading it to their colleagues and their family and cab drivers and everyone. In the first hour of the attack... 
St. Luke's Hospital near Tsukiji Station admitted 500 people. Wow. The sudden influx of victims required that the hospital's 100 doctors cancel all of their surgeries for the day, and 300 nurses and students from a nearby nursing college were recruited to volunteer in administering oxygen and placing IVs. An estimated 135 ambulance workers and 110 medical staff were exposed, 33 of which required hospitalization themselves, and an untold number were exposed in the offices of the people who made it to work that morning. Right. There's no way of really getting numbers on it because Mm -hmm. there are people who probably had minimal symptoms Mm -hmm. that didn't require hospitalization who have no idea why they felt ill. Like, yeah, and they're like, I wasn't at the subway. I didn't take the subway right. to work. I just, I feel kind of weird or, yeah, something like that. And there were a lot of people who, I don't I don't know if they knew what to expect with Saren. Some of them had heard of the Matsumoto attack, and so they knew a little bit about it. But I think that the headaches that they were experiencing and the inability to see was not something they were anticipating. And so a lot of people were just like, oh, I have a terrible migraine or, like, right. I feel kind of anemic today. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we do have thousands of people that were eventually admitted, but who knows how many people were actually affected. But not all the bags had been found, and the trains were still running. Two of the bags in the fifth car of the Marunouchi line passed through Kasumigaseki and then reached the end of the line, passed through the station again, then the bags were found and removed by a station master, but still the train ultimately reached the end of the line again and passed through Kamugaseki three times, spreading sarin gas up and down the entire line. Finally, at around 9.27, all of the trains were stopped and the stations were closed owing to a terrorist attack. They were finally Finally, understanding. Finally realizing the gravity of the situation. Mm -hmm. Some had already come to this conclusion themselves, as I said. The Masumoto attack had been reported on. It was in the papers. It was on TV. And there were suspicions that that gas attack had been sarin and that Ohm was behind it. But that doesn't mean that everyone knew about it. Some people had heard, some people hadn't. I mean, even first responders, they weren't prepared because they didn't either know or assume that it would be Ohm or Sarn this Mm -hmm. time around. One particularly insightful passenger, I think, said, For a moment, I remembered the Matsumoto incident. Not that I went so far as to think it was Sarin or anything, but the thought of the Matsumoto incident did carry associations of scattering poison. The thought did cross my mind. Some loonies probably sprinkled pesticides or something. I didn't know anything about Ohm then, however. So what I think was interesting is that they mentioned, oh, it was probably pesticides, because the symptoms are exactly the same if it mm-hmm. was pesticides. So that was just right. very insightful. If Ohm had him impressed for time and had a pure solution of sarin, say even 80% instead of 30%, there could have been thousands of deaths rather than 12 In a strange twist, the early detection of one of the contaminants in the sarin, acetyl nitrile, actually led doctors to initially believe that this was the poison affecting the passengers and emergency service personnel. It was not until almost 10.30 that morning that a military doctor first suspected that it was actually sarin gas. It makes sense that it was a military doctor who... Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's where a lot of the information that I've gotten on sarin and cyanide for this season have Mm. come from is a military book. Immediately, the doctors of Tokyo, who were all trying their best to work together and treat these victims, began prescribing two PAM, and calls were made to the Matsumoto Hospital that had treated the victims of the sarin attack in 1994. 
and still victims continued to flood into the hospitals. Some arrived to work having just missed being exposed to the gas, only to have their colleagues come in after them complaining of nausea and difficulty breathing as the sarin off-gassed from their clothing. These individuals were immediately rushed to one of the 169 area hospitals that would continue to treat people for days and even weeks following the attack. Even with relatively few casualties, the injuries were horrific. As we discussed in the last episode, the symptoms of nerve, nerve agents are those sludge symptoms along with the pupil dilation and seizure activity. But as with any chemical, exposure is based on the dose and also the individual. Many, many people, as I said, experienced intense migraines and difficulty with their eyesight, but almost no other symptoms. One man actually had such a bad headache and memory loss and visual distortion that he thought he was experiencing a brain hemorrhage. Makes sense. I mean, I mean it, totally, totally. Yeah. But then I think it was funny he, like, funny in a dark way, that he was one of the first people, I think, to experience it. Like, maybe he was not on one of the cars, but was at an exposed station or something and then got off and saw somebody else who was like, oh, I don't feel good. And he was like... I wonder if he's having a brain hemorrhage, too. Wouldn't that be really weird? Wouldn't that be weird? Yeah. (laughs) One woman was admitted to the hospital after the sarn fused her contacts to her eyes, which had to be surgically removed. Oh, my God. Another victim had to make the terrible decision to abort a baby she was happily expecting or possibly birth a child with debilitating birth defects. In the weeks to come, St. Luke's would treat survivors for insomnia, headaches, and flashbacks, and hundreds of people would suffer PTSD following the attack. I mean, that makes total sense. Totally, totally. In total, some 6,300 people that we know of were victimized, and 12 were killed by the single attack of terror on the Tokyo subway on March 20th, 1995. Why the members of OM thought delivering a massive attack on the subway system using a chemical they were suspected of creating in high volumes would actually draw attention away from them and prevent a raid is to be seriously questioned. And of course, we all know the answer is that they were super fucked up on drugs and not in the best state of mind for making big decisions. Makes sense. (laughs) They were able to buy some time to destroy documentation and other incriminating evidence against them, but it seems like more incriminating evidence was now in the world and out of their control. A force of 2,500 officers was assembled and armed with canaries like they were going into a fucking cave (laughs) and... The Mount Fuji compound and other own facilities were raided just two days after the attack on March 22nd. They were only delayed by two days. Yeah, so this didn't stop them. The firebombing mm. didn't help. No. Like, no. I think everything more, like, pointed to own. Pointed, yeah. Like, <laughs> said, hey, over here, we're doing despicable things. <laughs> Asahara knew they were still coming, of course. And he made this announcement to his followers in Russia the night before. Let us proceed with salvation and meet death without regrets. Whether you deceive yourself or not, you will certainly die. Glory to infinity. True glory to my beloved followers who have been slandered simply because they have received Om Shinrikyo's teachings. Glory to those who have recently joined us. Over 400 members were arrested and 60 tons of sarin precursor chemicals and other substances were seized from the Mount Fuji compound over the next week following the raid, including sodium cyanide, hydrochloric acid, chloroform, glycerin, peptone for cultivating bacteria, and 500 drums of phosphorus trichloride. 
which I think Jesus, 500 drums of anything. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like, seriously. I think that might be a Sauron precursor, but I'm not entirely sure. Their other buildings produced interesting finds as well. Their finance department had $7.9 million in cash on hand and 22 pounds of gold. Nice. And the prisons of the Om Shinrikyo structures were also discovered. 50 emaciated followers were found in a single prayer group, so badly starved and dehydrated they barely acknowledged the investigators and police who entered. Despite their conditions, or perhaps because of them, many denied medical attention. Six people were carried out on stretchers as they were unable to carry themselves. It was only now that the victims of the Detsura experiment that we talked about last episode were discovered, incoherent and pumped full of drugs, but even they could still be numbered among the survivors of Om Shinrikyo. Perhaps the most horrifying revelation in the raid is what they didn't find, which was bodies. Om had been connected to dozens of disappearances and possible murders, but all that investigators found to help bring them closure to these cases was 80 blackened metal drums in the room with the microwave and the cremains of a possible mother and child in a single funeral urn. Eventually, Om would be investigated for 20 murders. Asahara and his top aides were, of course, not among the people who were arrested as they had fled just ahead of the raid in a white Rolls Royce. Of course. But now they were extremely wanted by both Tokyo authorities and the media. The car was actually pursued. They saw it leave the compound and police and reporters tried to follow it, but somehow it got away. It seems very like cartoon villain. Yeah, that seems very like convenient. (laughs) I I know. Meanwhile, The country was gripped with fear. Taxi drivers reported an increase in fares following the attack as people avoided the subway for public transportation. The day after the attacks, March 21st, there was another scare with a foul-smelling package that caused an entire line to be stopped, but it turned out to just contain fish. How easy was it for them to clean the subway? I I don't imagine it was very easy. I didn't see any accounts of... But things were back to business the next day, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was back to business after. Yeah. I mean, because what are you going to do? There's still 5 million people who need to get to work, even though thousands are, like, hurt. We still got to keep going. I mean, Mm -hmm. once Hazmat came in and cleaned up everything, like, let's get back on, you know, keep calm and carry on, whatever. Yeah. Tokyo's reaction to the attacks were similar to the reaction of the United States following the attacks on 9-11. Stadiums and even department stores hired extra people to check guests' bags, security increased at offices, airports, and other public places, and it was not just the people of Japan who were worried. Public transit systems in London, San Francisco, and Barcelona increased their security measures, while South Korean officials investigated possible connections to the cult in Seoul. At JFK in New York, the FBI was called out because a threat had been made about a poison gas on a flight, which result in the jet in question being held on the runway for 10 hours. But it turned out to be nothing. It turned out to be nothing. Okay. Parents from all over Japan were still worried that the cult had a stranglehold on their children. More specifically, they were afraid that Ohm, seeing that all was lost for their previous way of life, would go the way of the People's Temple. Parents actually showed up to the Mount Fuji complex, where police and journalists were waiting for new developments, saying things like, I have come to kill myself if my son and other followers commit mass suicide. Wow. 
Others were more optimistic and had come to bring their children home once and for all. One man actually made it inside the complex, found his children, and then got them to leave with him. But police found them exiting the premises and cited the man for illegal entry and then sent his children back inside. What the fuck? I know. It kind of <laughs> reminds me of that shooting recently where that mom went in and saved her kid and his friend and then the police started harassing, harassing her Harassing her, yeah. Right. But, like, how dare you try to save your children? I know. And this guy wouldn't see his kids again for weeks as the raids and the investigation continued. And I don't even know what purpose that's for. Like, if you have to question them, take their names and address, but let them go home. Right. And it seems like the illegal entry is, like, at the low end of the list of what we're investigating right now. Like, this just seems, yeah. yeah. But whatever. I'm sorry, are you going to arrest me for jaywalking to the complex, too? (laughs) Right. The the complex that you're raiding that has chemical (laughs) weapons? Like, okay. Sorry, I was trespassing. Yeah. Four days after the attack, Asahara sent a message through a pre-recorded video broadcast on national television, which stated that, I am seriously sick. About 50% of my 1,700 pupils are troubled with sickness as we have been sprayed with poisonous gases such as sarin and mustard gas. The gas was unmistakably sprayed by U.S. troops. This actually only increased fear among the public since Ohm had yet to be officially linked to the subway attacks and the raids were publicly only being tied to the disappearance of notary public Kiyoshi Kiara. And, like, I get that they didn't want to pinpoint Ohm yet because they didn't have enough evidence, but, like, everyone knows it's Ohm for the most part. But then they're like, well, what if it's not Ohm? And what if everybody's using gases on each other? Like, (laughs) still, uh, though. Right. And as far as the regular person knew, the police had no leads on the attacks if it wasn't Ohm and if they were saying it wasn't Ohm. So the culprits are still out there in the world and can strike again anytime. Which is even more frightening. Right. And if it was, in fact, the United States, what the fuck would that lead to? Like, obviously, Asahara wants everybody to, like, freak out and initiate World War III. So, like, that's kind of where he's heading. Mm -hmm. Ohm was not ready to go down, and Asahara and his top aides were ready to do whatever it took to stay out of prison and move forward with their plans for Armageddon. The members who managed to escape apprehension by police had taken with them a small cache of chemicals, including sodium cyanide, hydrochloric acid... VX, and an arty explosive with a triggering device. On March 30th, just as Takaji Kunimatsu was getting into his chauffeur-driven car to be driven to work around 8 a.m., shots rang out. Kunimatsu, who was the head of the National Police Agency and was also the official leader of the OM investigation, was shot four times with hollow-point bullets in the leg, chest, and abdomen, Three of them remained lodged in his body as he was rushed to the hospital by ambulance, and he had to endure six hours of surgery to remove them. But in the end, he was stabilized and on his way to recovery. And I'm assuming that this is Ohm that was responsible for this. Yes, yes. Two hours after Kunimatsu was shot, a call came into a Japanese television network warning that more police officers would die, starting with the head of the Tokyo Metropolitan Police. Immediately upon investigating both the assassination attempt and the phone call, it became obvious that Om Shinrikyo was behind it. The police were not about to back down this time, and security was increased for suspected VIP targets as the raids continued. Om also continued its onslaught of lies on television. 
After the attacks on cops were announced, the Japanese police put out wanted posters and plastered the faces of the OM members still at large all over the country and set up 24-hour roadblocks. But for all they knew, the fugitives may have fled the country. Asahara was last seen buying a slide and a swing set at a toy store on March 3rd, well before the attack, and in April, a flight was booked in his name for Moscow. On April 5th, Hideo Marai gave an interview in English where he tried to explain the massive amount of chemicals found in the Mount Fuji complex. We are stocking many chemicals in our compound to prepare for life after the end, he said. He also stated that Om Shinrikyu is being singled out as a suspect because they were not unthinking and loyal as Japan wanted their subjects to be, which is very along something that a cult would say very in opposition. Much so. Very much so. <laughs> when Marai was asked who was behind the attack, if not Om, he said, I do not know, but whoever they are, they must have had highly developed facilities. Yes, let me applaud the culprit. Let me just and, pat myself on the back real yeah, quick. <laughs> let me applaud them. Like, okay. Yeah. Somehow in the midst of all this, and while in hiding, Asahara managed to publish another own book. This one was entitled, The Pity of a Ruinous Country, Japan. <laughs> wherein he described how he was currently suffering from heart disease and cerebral thrombosis, which, why do all cult members end up suffering from something that they can't cure, like, inexplicably? What is that? What is that? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> and he warned that if the government oppressed a prophet, then the people of the country would experience a national disaster. And as if he hadn't spread enough fear, it doesn't appear that he was talking about the sarin attacks at all, but he was predicting another attack on Tokyo for April 15, 1995, that would, quote, make the Kobe earthquake seem as minor as a fly landing on one's cheek. And this was in reference to a magnitude 6.9 earthquake that hit Kobe on January 17, 1995, and killed over a thousand people. Like, 1995 was a hard fucking year for Japan. It sounds like it. Following the publication of the book and the threat on Tokyo, Japan entered a state of emergency and 10,000 cops were prepared to raid 120 ohm locations ahead of the predicted catastrophe. What they found during the raid was a note that read, quote, if police ever enter the place where Master Asahara is hiding, we will throw sarin at them and die together. And somehow, I don't know why. I don't know what we're prioritizing in these raids. We're not letting children go home, and I don't know if they're adult children or not. But not all of the children had yet been rescued for the cult. Like, the, the minor children had not been rescued. rescued. Nice. Okay. During the raid on Satian's 10... 53 children were taken into protective custody. Most of them were wearing PSI caps, and eight of them were malnourished enough to require hospitalization immediately. Wow. The mental toll of being raised in a cult was apparent in the stories and statements given by the children. One nine-year-old girl told caretakers that she never played outside because the air is full of poison gas. No. And a five-year-old girl explained that, quote, the war will start soon. We have to fight back. Otherwise, I won't live until my sixth birthday. Imagine being five and that is what your life is filled with, is just fear of war and poison. I can't like, even imagine. No, no normal childhood whatsoever. Like I can't they even didn't, imagine. They didn't have a chance. No, no. But so no one knew what to expect on April 15th. 
There were rumors of the possibility of poisoning the water supply, and so some residents of Tokyo, they took to filling their tubs with water, which I guess is what you do ahead of, like, a tornado or something. There was also a word of a sarin gas attack on this Shinjuku shopping district that would lead to the temporary closure of stores and an increase of security in that area. And the Army Chemical Warfare Unit was basically prepared for anything, as were area hospitals, which stocked up on nerve agent antidotes. So everybody is trying to just prepare for anything, mm-hmm. but mostly they think it's probably going to be chemical. When the day finally came, it was a quiet Saturday save for the sound of helicopters flying over the city. Shopping centers and subways saw decreased traffic, and those who chose to brave the possibility of an attack and venture outside were surrounded by cops in bulletproof vests and camera crews on the lookout for anything out of the ordinary. But nothing happened. The 15th came and went without incident, but Shoka Asahara had proven that he had power over the city of Tokyo and perhaps the entire country of Japan in the same way that he had exerted power over his followers through fear for years. In fact, 500 members of Ohm had left Tokyo ahead of the Day of Doom to stay in Mount Fuji because they also believed that something was going to happen. They had no more idea than anybody else did. Do, do we know if any of the, like top officials in ohm knew that it wasn't going to be anything or were they all like everybody was under the impression that something was going to happen it's hard to say because none of them were were saying one way or another if Mm. they knew Mm. four days later 600 subway commuters at the yokohama station were hospitalized with sore throats and eyes in an attack that at first seemed very reminiscent of the sauron attack but that turned out to be a release of mace by a small-time gangster and was completely unrelated Okay. That same day, the news of an explosion in Oklahoma City ripped through international headlines. 500 people were injured and 169 were killed in the attack on the federal building. And given the timing of everything, it really could have been anyone who was behind it, including Om Shinrikyo. Makes sense. Two days later, there was another attack at the Yokohama subway station and 24 people were hospitalized. Do we know what that one was? Mm Mm-mm. No, no. I don't think that one was umption Rikyo. I think that people were just taking advantage of the and, climate. And just the wreaking time. havoc. Yeah. So at this point, we're about halfway through. Shit's getting real weird in the story, but I want to pause and I want to pivot for a second. So I've been thinking a lot about the ethics behind true crime podcasts and reporting, and I know this is maybe going to be too meta for some people, but stick with me. It seems fairly obvious that if people are listening to us, they're probably into true crime and they probably see some of the benefits of this kind of content besides, like, entertainment. You know, there is some educational value, I think. And I think that there's also an importance in knowing what has happened and what can happen again. You know, like, people, I don't don't want to quote people who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it because that's kind of the misquote that was in the People's Mm -hmm. Temple on Jonestown. But, like... Mm -hmm. You do want to know so that you don't make the same mistakes, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'd like to think that we take a unique view on our show and we give our audience a valuable, like, day-to-day information, you know, like, be careful with your electrolytes and all the sludge information, right? Sure. And I think that you and I have been interested in true crime for a long time, you know, Forensic Files for Life. (laughs) Yeah. And it's something that, like, I know you and I, we both find it comforting. We have it on in the background when we're doing stuff. We'll fall asleep to it. 
Like Definitely. I know that that's more of a pattern for people who have been socialized as women and girls, but it's even more so than usual. Like, lately, I've been thinking about arguments against true crime. Like, it's just, it's come up a lot in the media that I've been exposing myself to. And I know that it's profiting off of the worst day in someone's life or can be invasive, but I... Like, I don't, I don't feel like we're contributing to, like, the hindrance of an ongoing case or something like that, you know? I definitely don't think that we are, we mm-hmm. aren't looking at any cases that are current enough to be meddling. We're yeah, just reporting exactly. on history. Right. Oftentimes, and like, and, and any the current cases that we have covered, like the arsenic exposure mm-hmm. that's still ongoing today is more to bring knowledge, not to meddle. I would think so. That's that's how I think we've both tried to approach it. And mm-hmm. I know, you know, people could take this soundbite and hate share and say that we're full of shit and we're hypocrites, whatever. But I do feel like that there are benefits. But especially with the rise in popularity of shows like Dahmer and Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile that have like these really good looking guys playing serial killers and are just getting like kind of excessive in their detail like have you heard about either of these shows i've heard about dahmer i haven't watched it but i've heard that it's just like gore porn yeah actually I'm, I'm not gonna watch it like the victim's families are like this was triggering like i don't want to watch that you right know? so i get that you know i wouldn't want to contribute to something like that But unfortunately, the glorification of murderers, serial killers, cult leaders, it's not new. I mean, women were saying that Ted Bundy was hot back when he was on trial. Like, he got Mm -hmm. someone to marry him in court. While he was in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Manson managed to get a bunch of young women to follow him. And I know that I'm, like, focusing on women right now. But it's not just women. Like, guys can be, like, fans of serial killers and stuff, too. Mm -hmm. And there were fangirls of, like, there was actually a 32-year-old named Fumihiro Juyo, who was the former chief of Ohm's Moscow branch and their PR rep. And women's magazines just loved him. They, like, they wrote about him like he was a J-pop star. They seriously did. And girls were waiting (laughs) outside the Tokyo headquarters to get, like, a glimpse of him. Oh, wow. Like, he was a celebrity. And there were, you know, reporters in gas masks, and there were police, and there were people who were stopping to, like, take pictures outside of it. So, like, I don't know. It's just, like, this is not new. And there, I think there's a lot of, like, different, more dangerous ways to contribute to, like, true crime and all of that than, than I think that I think that what gets really dangerous is, and I can't think of the name of the case right now, but when everybody was trying to solve the case of the girl who was missing and the guy and was on the run, worse. and they yeah. make it worse, like was that, that... Madison McLean or no? Oh, was it the the Petito case? Yes, Gabby Petito. Oh yeah, yeah. I the tried to actually case. just like not know anything about that because I was like, just let the police do their jobs, right? And like, I think that that's where things get dangerous is where people try to insert themselves they try to become detectives on their own instead of letting the professionals handle it Mm -hmm. and because sometimes you might think you have a lead but it's bringing people in the wrong direction and Mm -hmm. they're exerting resources outside of where they should be allocated yeah totally i mean there's that idaho stabbing case that people are like 
calling in and saying that they think they know who did it. But some people are calling in just to be assholes and have, like, people investigate right. people they don't like. Sure. And it's like, we don't need to waste resources that right. way. Right. And that's and that's what I think is, is what gets dangerous. And when things get beyond spectacle, and, and I think that that's kind of what some of the newer shows are doing, is just, like, well, and Netflix knows that true crime is one of its most watched things. So they're like, what are we going to pump our money into? Yeah. You know, and so, it, but it's like when, I don't know, I have, I haven't, like, there's a reason why I haven't watched it. Just because, like, I already know enough about, Dom I don't, I honestly don't find Dahmer that fucking interesting, mm -hmm. to be honest. Like, he's never been one that I'd, like be that into but <laughs> i, I want to cover him at some point because he was a chemist's son but i like I, we would cover it our way we wouldn't cover it the way that like that well and they just they're making everything they're just hollywoodifying everything mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying like like yeah. you said with the you know with the hot actors and that like they're not like there because there wasn't there a Dahmer movie that another one that was made that was a little bit more gritty. I'm trying to like my friend Dahmer yeah. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that was a couple years before. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Like I don't know. I just the like being shocking for the sake of being shocking. Like it's already shocking enough. You don't yeah. need to take it over the top. Yeah, I totally agree. I and I don't know. I don't understand people, and they've always done it. We've unfortunately always been, like kind of been mud at our core where people like want to come take pieces of things and they want to mm -hmm. do the like dark tourism of stuff and i think mm -hmm. that's what was going on with omshin regio right mm -hmm. like people stopping to to see like are we gonna see a cult member are we gonna see shoko asahara what else is gonna happen is there right. gonna be sarin gas like right <laughs> so anyhow it's a fucking madhouse at the tokyo headquarters Hideo Marai is supposed to give a press conference to the media on April 23rd in front of this absolute fucking circus, and he gets stabbed in the stomach by a gangster with a butcher knife and was killed on primetime television. Oh, wow. The guy who killed him was 29-year-old So Yu Hang, who is able to basically just waltz up through the crowd and kill Marai. And then he actually had to, like, wait for a second before police apprehended him. Like, I don't know if it was, like, shock or what, but there was just this, like, moment where he could have ran. Where it's like, wait, what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> and Hang was arrested, but it was uncertain who ordered the kill because it didn't really seem like he was motivated himself to kill Marai. Possibly, some people think it was Asahara himself, but it could have mm. also been a contract killing for the Yakuza to cover up Ohm's links with their drug trafficking operations mm. now that the shit's getting, like, mm -hmm. way out of pocket. They're like, we gotta, we gotta distance ourselves from this <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah, the Yakuza wants to distance yourself. <laughs> <laughs> the remaining Ohm members who remained in the public eye and out of prison for the time being increased their own security and personal protection. Fumihiro Joyu took to wearing a riot helmet and bulletproof vest while out in public. The police also continued to raid home facilities almost daily. On April 26th, they realized Satyan 2 had a basement that wasn't on any building plan, and they found Masami Suchia, Ohm's chief chemist, and Seichi Endo, the botulinum enthusiast, who were both arrested on minor charges of harboring fugitives. By the end of the month, 150 members of Ohm had been arrested, but charges were still not being pressed for the sarin attack on the subway. Asahara was still unaccounted for, as was his personal physician, Tomomasa Nakagawa, and a particle physicist named Toru Toyota, 
and an ohm spy named Yoshihiro Inoue. It had been over six weeks since the attack, and people were torn between living in a world that would never be the same as it was and wanting life to get back to a comfortable routine, which I think sounds very familiar. Very familiar. May 5th marked another holiday in Japan, Children's Day, which is part of a whole week of celebrations called Golden Week. An extra 60,000 police were on patrol in shopping centers and tourist traps, while record numbers of people were getting around Tokyo via mass transit on subways and trains. Around 7.40 in the evening, a bag in a restroom at one of the busiest subway stations burst into flame. Station attendants were able to control the fire with water until the fire department was called in. At this point, they were prepared to face any sort of gaseous hazard and entered the station with masks and breathing apparatuses, which was good because they actually did almost need them. When the smoke cleared, investigators found that the remains of the bag contained two condoms, which the fire was meant to eat through to release their contents. One condom contained granulated sodium cyanide, while the other contained sulfuric acid, and had they been allowed to combine, it would have created... What, Venus? Mustard gas? Mm-mm. What? Zyklon B. Oh. That's the recipe for Zyklon B we talked about. Mm. And this could have easily led to the death of 20,000 people in around the station. So was this also Om Shinrikyo? This was also Om Shinrikyo. Okay. So they're not, they're still hard at it. Mm-hmm. They're not letting the arrests and the raids get the best of them. No, no. And they're, I mean, some of their top aides have been caught, but the people like Fumihiro Joyu, they're still out. And then the people who are willing to take orders from those people, some mm-hmm. of them are still out. So, yeah, they are, they are not taking any of this well. But nobody was hurt. No. Luckily, nobody because was Because the hurt. other bag hadn't burst. Yes. Yeah. Got it. The people of Japan had almost completely lost their faith in the police to be able to protect them from Om Shinrikyo or to capture its remaining members, and not without reason. There were the continued terror attempts for one, but also the police had actually figured out where Asahara was hiding out, but were still just sitting on the information for weeks before they decided to act. And, like, I get it. I get that you need to make plans. But, like, this guy has been behind demanding Many, many terrorist attacks. I wanted to right. just say two or three, but many, many attempts at terrorists. And attacks, murders. Like... like just random murders of people that he finds to be a minor inconvenience for him. Yeah, like why are you just letting him sit and be out and continue to talk to people right. who are willing to take orders from him? It doesn't make right. any sense. No. Once it was finally decided that they were going to raid Sachian 6, where they had seen cult members carrying out Asahara's favorite food, which was melons, and only he was allowed to eat the melons, the media outlets quickly picked up rumors of capture and swarmed the compound. Reportedly, one outlet sent as many as 24 vehicles, 70 cameras, 700 reporters and staff, oh my God. <laughs> and three helicopters to Mount Fuji. Like, it is a fucking circus. Yeah. On May 16th, 1995, police investigators began their 56th raid on Ohm at around 5 o'clock in the morning. News station broadcast what they could from the outskirts of the compound for four hours. 
Trading halted at the Tokyo Stock Exchange, and the coverage of the O.J. Simpson murder trial was interrupted on CNN to show the live footage from the foot of Mount Fuji. Like, the amount of, like, international news that was happening around the same time is just baffling to me. Yeah, it's huge. While searching Sachin 6, investigators noticed that the ceiling tiles were shifted in a way that they hadn't been during the last police search. When they took a harder look inside the ceiling, they found Shoka Asahara sitting cross-legged in the dark. (laughs) He claimed to have been meditating for the last three days. (laughs) Like, yeah, dude, you're just chilling out up there. Yeah. (laughs) He was informed that he was being charged with murder and was arrested. 41 other high-ranking members of Om Shinrikyo were also arrested that day on suspicion of accessory to murder, but investigators were not yet finished with this organization, which had been out of their reach for so long and could only now be brought down since it was apparent that it never had been a legitimate religious organization. Well, it's about goddamn time. I know. They got away with so fucking much because they were like, so oh, much. it's a religion. And, and, and like, so much, like, just skirted under the rug because it was too much trouble. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It just, it sucks that, like, it had to turn into a sarin attack on the Tokyo subway. Right, for them, for them to, like, to finally do something about it. Yeah, like, 20 people were murdered, at least. Right, right. Now, Fumihiro Joyu denounced the arrest, committed as ever to the serene facade of peace and calm that Asahara had wanted the group to portray in public. But even after the arrest of the guru, there would be one more attack. The evening after the raid, the governor of Tokyo announced his intentions to officially revoke Ohm's status as a legitimate religious organization. His secretary was going through his mail and opened a package addressed from a Tokyo assemblyman, which exploded and blew the fingers oh, off of his left hand. Yeah. Luckily, he lived, but, I mean, he was bombed. Disfigured, yeah. yeah. And the drama continued as the evidence was gra- gathered for court proceedings. Asahara and six other cult members were indicted on murder charges for the subway attacks on June 6th. Despite having claimed that he was terribly sick... Asahara was given a completely clean bill of health and even gained weight while incarcerated and awaiting his trial. Some former members and their relatives were vocal in regards to their opinion on Asahara and his aides. One of Asahara's bodyguards testified to the court that, quote, Ohm is a devilish group. Please put Asahara to death. And I will say that the death penalty in Japan is very rare. Very rarely do they do they execute people for crimes other members meanwhile were bullied into silence with the last remaining ounces of power that the cult had over them one of the followers was going to confess to his crimes when he was threatened by an ohm lawyer who told him quote the guru will come and you will go to hell another member had recurring nightmares of being given a bomb to use in an attack for the cult that would cause her to wake up screaming in her bed in a jail cell Uh like I mean, I, he had a hold on these people. He had a hold on these people. And some of them I don't find sympathy for, obviously. But it's just like Jonestown. Like, you have the outer circle to the inner circle. Sure. And, like, man, it just sounds rough. Yeah. But even without the top leaders running the cult, Om Shinrikyo carried on. On June 21st, someone who claimed to be a member of Om hijacked an all-Nippon Airways plane flying out of Tokyo and carrying 365 people. Saburo Kobayashi broke into the cockpit of the plane with an ice pick and tied up the co-pilot as a protest of Asahara's imprisonment. 
He demanded Asahara be released in exchange for the safety of those on the plane and also that it be landed, refueled, and flown back to Tokyo. Meanwhile, the pilot hit an alarm to alert authorities that the plane was being hijacked. The plane was landed, but the Japanese prime minister rejected the demand. The cultist, the apparent cultist, was arrested, and the Japanese government was placed on alert for chemical attacks and further air attacks. Fumuhiro Joyu denied that Ohm had any involvement with the hijacking and claimed that there wasn't even anyone in Ohm with the name Saburo Kobayashi, and if there was, he would get kicked out. But it's also likely that this was an alias, so it's hard to say if it was just somebody mm, who was causing sure. trouble to cause trouble because of the climate or if it was actually an, an Ohm member. In July, there were four failed gas attacks on the Tokyo subway in a single day, including two more attempts with hydrogen cyanide. Luckily, no one was hurt in these attacks. Tokyo police distributed 1.6 million flyers and posters in their search for the remaining cult members they saw and ultimately ended up detaining 350 people and indicting 192 for major crimes. Wow. In September of 1995, the remains of Tsutsumi Sakamoto and his family were revealed by one of their murderers to the police to be in a wooded hillside where they had been dumped by the cult in November of 1989. The member who showed them the graves of the family was Kuziaki Okazaki, who claimed to have sent a letter revealing the final resting place of 14-month-old Tatsuhiko Sakamoto in 1990. Following the discovery of the bodies, Okozaki and six others, including Asahara, were charged officially with the murders of the Sakamotos. Four of the other murderers were already in custody, and the fifth had been Hideo Marai. Other authorities around the world were beginning to panic as well, especially because of the vast influence that it was apparent now that Ohm had worldwide. A counterterrorism group in the CIA testified to the Senate Congressional Committee in October of 1995 that Ohm had operated completely off the radar of the U.S. intelligence community. Ohm had a branch in Manhattan, as we talked about before. Right. And Manhattan has a similar subway system to Tokyo, so New York would have been completely unprepared to deal with a deliberate release mm-hmm. of nerve, nerve agent, both in police training and, like, emergency personnel. Like, it would have been the same thing. Which is fucking dumb, because Ohm got their inspiration from... From... The army! Yeah. The the military attacks on the New York subway. Like, how were we unprepared for something like this? Right. After you guys were like, oh, well, what would happen if we did this? Like, did you not take notes? Right. Did they, like, like, what would happen if we did this? Let's do nothing about that thing. Yeah, I just... Like, why did we do it to begin with? (laughs) It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. It makes me have such little faith in the people who are supposed to, like, keep us safe. Not that I have faith in police or anything, but it's like, come on, you guys. Yeah. A little something. What? (laughs) So Tokyo police were tightening security in anticipation of the beginning of the Omshinrikyo trial, which was seeking the death penalty. As I said, like, it's not common for Japan to seek the death penalty, but they were going to try to execute those who were indicted on murders related to the gas attacks. Late in October 1995, on the eve of the day the trial was set to begin, Asahara dismissed the cult's lawyer. And this led to an indefinite postponement because no other lawyers wanted to represent Ohm in court. Well, that's good that there wasn't some shysty guy who shows up and goes, yes, I've got your back. (laughs) Or that they just had a lawyer on deck like like Jonestown and things like that. Yeah. uh, People's Temple. Yeah. 
Once resumed, the trial proceedings were only conducted one day a week, which is an ex- expedited timeline from normal trials, which are conducted one day per month. Oh, wow. I know. That's crazy. And so it could take two or three years to reach a conclusion. And, like, I just, I don't, why is, <laughs> I can't even think, why isn't it faster? Don't these people, like, the victims need speedy, speedy trial? justice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's they just do not a... have the right to a speedy trial. No, no. And it's something that we're also all about here. And even here, it's not fast. No, like... <laughs> definitely not. But apparently, compared to other parts of the world, it is. Yeah. And their trials, I don't know that this matters as much, but their trials aren't actually conducted in front of juries of peers. It's three judges, and the judges would ultimately announce okay. verdict. Okay. And Asahara might have thought that the, he somehow had the upper hand because of this postponement. But that didn't mean that the courts were continuing to ignore Ohm as they had been before him on a technicality or fear. It was the opposite. Like, he was being such a huge pain in the ass, they were focusing on him now. Mm-hmm. Just days after Asahara dismissed the Colts lawyer, a judge in the Tokyo District Court ruled that Ohm Shinrikyo must be disbanded. He said, quote, it is impossible to measure the fear and anxiety that Ohm caused the public. We can no longer leave it as a religious organization. Even while disbanded, the members would still have a right to meet and pray and do yoga together, but they would no longer have the religious entity status under J- Japanese law. So its assets would have to be sold and they would have to pay taxes on any money earned like a regular business would. Well, about damn time. Uh, yeah. I guess. <laughs> it, it just feels like too little too late at this yeah, point. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. It's like maybe you could have disbanded them before the acts of terror. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <And> before th- <laughs> the brainwashing. Before <laughs> the indoctrination. Before they spread to Russia. <laughs> yeah. Like, but okay. And there was additional talk of just like banning the cult in Japan, and that would have actually been able to prevent them from assembling together, but they decided that Om Shinrikyo no longer posed the same threat that it had on the security of the country. And that's fine because, it, I don't know, there are there's some free speech impediments to a degree that if they banned them... Sure. Like, I don't know. They're, like, Amnesty International stepped in at a couple points and was like, you are overstepping... But, like, the security of the country was never going to be the same as it was before they died. No, absolutely not. Nobody believed in the police anymore. We already saw the kind of destruction that could be wrought. And Ohm still existed. Like, I don't know. Them saying, like, oh, it was not as big of a security issue. It's like, I don't don't know about that. There was a lot of people who were pretty gung-ho about this. And it's just, it's so sad because, like... I kept reading these accounts and the Haruki Murakami book that I read, he put out a book of just um, 60 interviews with people who survived the attack in like 1996 after interviewing them. And people kept saying like Japan used to be such a safe country. We used to think it was just so safe compared to the rest of the world, you know, like compared to the United States, especially like I could definitely see that. And then after this, you know, a terrorist attack happened. They were woefully underprepared for it. And they're just like, oh, I guess I guess nowhere. We're not. Yeah. Like, it's just it's sad. And even if security were increased to prevent another attack, the effects of Ohm's presence it was still going to be there. Like, people were still going to remember that. And they were still going to go about their days thinking, like, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, that's there's... not going to go away. No, no, no. So when 
Tokiyashi Toyota, the train station supervisor who survived the attack after his colleagues died, when he was interviewed by Haruki Murakami, he said, I gradually got my strength back, but it was a lot harder to get a grip on my mental state. First, I was hardly sleeping, barely two or three hours, then bang, I'd wake up and not be able to get back to sleep. It went on like that for days, and that was the good part. After that came the anger. I was irritable, irrational, got upset at everything. It was clearly some sort of hyper-excited condition. I didn't drink, obviously, so I was short of any psychological release. I couldn't concentrate either. I feel a lot more relaxed now, but this rage sometimes flares up over nothing. I have no physical symptoms, but psychologically there's this burden. I've got to get rid of it somehow. Of course, when I first went back to work, I was scared the same thing might happen again. It takes positive thinking to overcome fear. Otherwise, you'll carry around this victim mentality forever. Mm-hmm. And the insomnia that he experienced was something that a lot of people experienced, like waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to get back to sleep. Like a lot of people had that problem. Another man, Koji Ohashi, who was on the Maru Nochi line, was hospitalized and had to take a whole month off work, which is, again... That was also very common for the victims. They were able to take a month, but they also had to take a full month. Mm -hmm. And then even after that, he was still experiencing debilitating headaches. On top of the emotional trauma, many people had, many people had headaches month after the attacks. And even those who were further away from the epicenter of the attack and had less exposure, they still had headaches. In October of 1996, a full year and a half after the attack, Ohashi said... I know I don't appear to be in constant pain, but imagine wearing a heavy stone helmet day in, day out. I doubt it makes much sense to anyone else. I feel very isolated. If I'd lost an arm or was reduced to a vegetable, people could probably sympathize more. If only I'd died then, how much easier it would have been. None of this nonsense. But when I think of my family, I have to go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it just it seems like a lot of people also weren't supported at all by their community. Like there were people who saw the attacks, but they weren't a part of it, and they just didn't understand what had happened. Right, they didn't know how to empathize or sympathize with it. Yeah, there were some people who were actually like mocked at work for having symptoms like months after, and it's like, what do you expect me to do? Right, like it's not like I went a part of this willingly. Like this yeah. isn't something I chose to be a part of. Like, yeah. come on. The court proceedings, if they were being followed by survivors, could not have done much to help them feel as though they could move on either. Some people were angry with Ohm, while others felt that no outcome could change what happened. And, like, yeah, it couldn't really. And then Azahara's dramatics just continued once he was in the courtroom. At one point, he admitted the responsibility for the sarin attack, but noted that he was not personally responsible for placing the poison. He refused to enter a plea and denied responsibility for the attack because Asahara largely just didn't talk for most of the proceedings. He wouldn't respond when asked a question and would mumble to himself incoherently like he was he was losing it. And then in November of 1996, he began taunting the judge during his own lawyer's cross-examination of a former top aide. <laughs> he said, if the court wants to shoot me to death, go ahead and do so. The judge told him to be quiet, and he responded, Unless I retract my remarks, will I be sentenced to death immediately? Send me to the death gallows. And then he had to be removed from the room. Nice. 
In April of 1997, Asahara finally entered a guilty plea during a stream of thought monologue that alternated between English and Japanese, and which Cheryl Wu Dunn at the New York Times described as a, quote, meandering, often unintelligible court presentation that at times elicited sarcastic laughter from spectators in the room. <laughs> Asahara claimed that he ordered two of his top aides to abort the attack before it happened, and they did not obey him. Quote, in the end, it was me who was convinced by them, and that eventually led to my arrest. Mm. I know. Fucking for real, dude. <laughs> okay, you're going you're gonna to run this call and then be like, no, but I said don't do it. <laughs> I know I was the leader, but, like, I kind of wasn't the leader at this point. They didn't listen to me. Yeah. I he said all- stop. <laughs> I, I think I said stop. I think I may have said stop. <laughs> God. He also tried to say that he never ordered the death of Tsutsumi Sakamoto. And technically, I think this is true. I don't think he technically said go kill that guy. But, like, we all know what he meant. Yeah, exactly. And they knew what he meant. The first verdict in the murder trial for the deaths of the victims of the su- on the subway came on May 26, 1998. Oh, wow. So, like, over three years later. You will not believe how long this drags on for. Elm's physician, Ukuyo Hayashi, who spread the sarin on the Chiyoda line three years before, but who also attempted to poison the city of Tokyo with botulinum toxin and shocked cult members with PSI caps and allegedly performed plastic surgery on some members so they would avoid police capture, was sentenced to life in prison with a chance for parole after 20 years served. Six years later, in 2004, 48-year-old Chizuo Matsumoto, a.k.a. Shoko Asahara, was finally sentenced in 2004. It's almost been a decade since the attack. Yeah, wow. To the end, Asahara refused to cooperate and had to be held up by five guards to receive his sentence while standing. Asahara was found guilty on 13 different charges, including kidnapping, murder, and illegal production of weapons and drugs, and sentenced to death by hanging. This was the same sentence that 12 other OM members were also given. Immediately, of course, Asahara and the other cultists filed appeals on their sentences, which continued to draw out the court proceedings. Oh, my God. The final appeals were rejected in 2011, bringing an end to the trials after 16 years. Wow. I know. (laughs) I know. And the world had changed a lot since the beginning of the trials. The world had lived through gaining widespread access to the internet, Y2K, 9-11. Although there were still survivors of the attack who suffered from dizziness and trouble breathing, there were also Japanese citizens who were young enough that they had only just now started learning about the Tokyo attack through the news and stories from the people around them after the verdicts were given. Japan was a different Japan, but it was all that they had ever known. They had likely never heard of Om Shinrikyo, who still had three fugitive members being sought by police in 2011, but they might have heard of two groups called Aleph, which was asking for a stay of execution for the cult leaders, and a group called Hikari no Wa. After losing its religious organization status, Om was still making around $65 million a year. The fuck? And this was mostly through computer retail stores in Tokyo, Osaka, and Nagoya which meant that being forced to pay out $8 million to the surviving victims of the cult's actions had done little to affect or stop them. 
Cities in Japan with own properties were actually buying land from Ohm around the end of 1999 to get them to leave, which sparked debate as to whether it was enabling them to pay them, even if it did get the cult out of certain cities. Others chose to refuse service or even deny city citizenship to cult members to get them to leave without giving them financial support. The Japanese government also approved a bill in 1999 that would change how it monitored the activities of organizations that had committed indiscriminate mass murders and whose leaders had strong influence over their followers. So, cults, right? Right. But more specifically, they're saying Om Shinrikyo without saying Om Shinrikyo. Yeah. (laughs) There were constitutional problems with this bill, and even the president of the Japanese Federation of Bar Associations said that it, quote, enables authorities to take up measures to limit basic human rights, as it could be used to monitor, search property without a warrant, or arrest anyone that the government didn't like and could make up something about them being in a dangerous organization. Mm. Like, none of the solutions that they've been looking into have been really very useful. Following these changes and the release of Fumihiro Joyu from prison, who had become Ohm's leader after Asahara fled from authorities and was then arrested, the cult changed its name to Aleph in early 2000, meaning New Beginning. And they actually admitted that they were behind the subway attacks, they apologized, and they said they were no longer a threat to Japan. Oh, we're sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. sorry. Yu announced that the organization was going to reform itself and was distancing itself from Shoko Asahara and his more dangerous teachings, but not severing ties. Just like you wouldn't stop your connection with physical fathers and mothers who commit a crime, we will not sever our connection with our spiritual father. The Master Asahara introduced us to the world of spiritualism. He gave us our second self, and we cannot deny that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's something called okay. cutting ties with toxic people, Joe. You. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, but he taught me so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just... Ugh. In 2007, though, Joe Yu formed the splinter group Hikari no Wa and was going to take 163 Aleph members with him, including 57 who lived in the Aleph compound. At the time of the separation, around 400 people were living in Aleph's 30 facilities and 700 others supported the organization through donations. Like, Om Shinrikyo, quote-unquote, was right. like, still doing pretty well. Yeah, the, I mean, they're making... M- Tens of millions of dollars every year. They're like, yeah. they're self-sustainable at this point. Well, like still. And the scary thing is, according to Joe Yu, the division came because some members of Aleph were too supportive of Shoka Asahara. Oh wow! Like the guy who's saying, like, oh, we can't, I can't let Dad go. I love Dad. Like he's like, oh, you guys love Dad a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> like... And Hikari no Wa he said, would be a further separation from Asahara and his more violent teachings. And Joyu, he was convinced that things would change once Asahara was executed. Like, his die-hard followers would be distraught at first, but then they would come to see, like, the error of their ways. Mm. But Probably I don't know. I don't know about that because, like, Asahara isn't in the group and, like... And he's... Still has a hold on people. Yeah. I mean, I think that actually they had changed things so that some members of the group were able to visit him in prison, which doesn't seem like a good idea because, like, I don't know. Would you let people visit Manson in prison? No. <laughs> but either way, Joe, you and the rest of the world would have to wait almost another decade 
before the execution of Shoka Asahara came and we could see what happened with Aleph and Hikari Noa. In the meantime, three remaining fugitives from the Ohm days were found and jailed. Makoto Harada turned himself in on December 31, 2011 and was arrested for his part in the abduction and death of notary public Kiyoshi Kiara in February of 1995. Six months later, a woman named Suzuko Sakurai was identified by neighbors to actually be Naoko Kikuchi based on wanted posters and also like a $125,000 reward that her neighbors learned mm-hmm. about. Doesn't hurt. And her capture led to the discovery and arrest of the third fugitive, Tatsuya Takahashi, who, after his arrest in July of 2012 for attempted murder for his part in the 1995 attack, claimed... I still believe, even now, in Asahara. Well, So, yeah. there. I guess there were still diehards, but I don't yeah. know. Like, everything was it was still just changing. Like, the, the groups were still growing. Olaf was growing by about 200 young people annually. And some of the literature that they found in the Olaf compounds were still just own literature. It had own branding. It had own <laughs> Right. Things. And I mean, actually, why pay for new marketing materials when you already have? Like, I already have all these. What's books. the point? <laughs> yeah, but the the materials that they found actually explicitly instructed that people over fifty not be recruited. So they were targeting younger people. Young people, and I don't know. Like doing that, it's like you're you're mostly targeting people who don't necessarily know of Om Shinrikyo, but do they know about it enough? Like, do they recognize it because of the Tokyo gas attacks, or they do right. they not know it at all? Like, I don't know what is drawing. These or do people. they not know that there's ties until they see the branding stuff, and then they go, oh, but then I they're already know. too deep, you know? I don't know? Yeah. Either way, by 2018, it was estimated that, that Hakari no Wa only had around 150 members. That Aleph was expanding as Odin Shinrikyo once had, and their membership numbered around 1,650 in Japan and 460 in Russia, and they still retained $9 million in assets. Oh, wow. And then, without warning, Shoka Asahara, Tomomitsu Nimi, Yoshihiro Inuai, Siechi Endu, Tomomasa Nakagawa, and Masami Tsuchiya were all hanged to death for their crimes on July 6, 2018. Neither family members of the prisoners nor survivors of the attack were warned ahead of time. Even their lawyers didn't know that the executions were going to happen when they did. And believe me, Amnesty International had something to say about this Japanese practice. Like, you're not going to warn us ahead of time that you're killing people? Right, just going to... Oh, today's the day. Today's the day. Yeah, like, (laughs) the prisoners, they only learned hours ahead of time that they were going to die. Wow. And then later that month, on July 26th, the other six prisoners were hanged, including Yasuo Hayashi, Kenichi Hirose, Turo Toyota, Masato Yokohama, Kazuka Kazuaki Okazaka, and Satoru Hashimoto. And I want to say that that's the end of Ohm, but it's clearly not, because there are still two groups, although there hasn't been much cover on them since before the executions. And there are still non-members who appear to sympathize with Ohm or Asahara. Maybe just edgelord shit, since they're not, like, members as far as I can tell and just sympathizers. But, like, where does that leave us? Like, what what the fuck is that? Like, what, where is the world now, Venus? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. 
Like, <laughs> we have two groups that still exist in Japan and Russia. One is pros- possibly more dangerous because they're like, oh, violent, violent teachings That's in Tokyo. Fine. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, like, let's do gas attacks again, you know? Like, who knows what they're planning. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe they're not planning anything, but it just seems, like, suspicious. And they are still being monitored. Like, both groups are still being monitored, but, like, I don't know. Om Shinrikyo was, like, being monitored, too. They were being monitored, yeah. Yeah, like, we kind and of... And they got away they with literal murder. Yeah. <laughs> like... So, man, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like, we're post-Om now, we're post-9-11, like... You know, we had the Trade Center attacks with the Ars or the the Anthrax, which we're totally going to cover, mm-hmm. right? But that is to mm-hmm. say that like how we view biochemical attacks has changed, and like access to biochemicals and chemical weapons. But it's also like I don't know. We already talked about how we don't have a whole lot of faith in the people who are supposed to protect us. So like, no, I don't know. I don't know what to say to end this episode. It's just like it's kind of say... over. <laughs> I would say groupthink is dangerous, yes. especially after this season. Oh, yeah. Cults are dangerous. <laughs> like it's this dangerous. season, like gr- gr- cults are dangerous. Groupthink is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Anybody talking about Armageddon, mm-hmm. be wary of yeah. them. Like, yeah, yeah. Anybody who tells you to like not think for yourself. But also mm-hmm. the people who are like, I have the answers. Everybody else doesn't yes, want you to Yes, I know this. everything. Like, anybody who is all-knowing, beware. Yeah. yeah. Like, anybody who says destruction to a group of people, mm-hmm. beware. Yeah, like, anybody who wants to, like, publicly humiliate you in some way, like, in your in-group, yeah. like, beware of them. Yeah, so, man, what a wild ride this season this, was. <laughs> this was a wild season. This was a wild season. We went a lot of places around the world. Yeah. And lots of lots of death and destruction in yeah. in the path. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we hit... We I think this might be our this. highest casualty season. Unfortunately. By, unfortunately, yeah. thus yeah. far. I mean, I want to say that next season it won't be, like quite as bad and it won't we're not looking into any like coverage of nazis next season or anything like that but i don't know if you're if you're listening we're always here to take you on a crazy ass ride (laughs) hell yeah so come with us to season five yeah we will see you then yeah happy holidays everybody happy happy holidays Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison.